Hot dog! I'm Joel Volk and welcome to Small BizCast, where I explore the lives of small business owners to dig a bit deeper and explore strengths, weaknesses, ideas, and challenges with blemishes and all. As you listen to Small BizCast, you will find comfort in knowing that you are not alone. Hopefully, you'll find inspiration and ideas from people I introduce you to. Hopefully, you'll laugh a little too. Hot dog, it's a wonderful life. Is your business sellable? Maybe you want to sell your business now, you want to sell it in the future, or maybe you believe no one in their right mind would ever buy your business. Our guest, Jessica Fialkovich of Exit Factor, finds entrepreneurs are often left in the dark about the future of their company and usually undervalue the possibilities and potential for their businesses. Jessica is also the author of Getting the Most for Selling Your Business. I want to welcome you, Jessica. I went through this. I, I know. I'm so, so excited for our conversation, Joel. Thanks for having me. Of course. You know, having gone yeah. through selling my business, and I talk about it often with people that I work with professionally, I think that I tend to romanticize it. I think I tend to, mm. you know, talk about it like like it's all positive and but it was painful. It was painful because it's very hard to separate a business from who I am when I ran my business for 33 years before I sold it. It was painful because I had to mislead or not tell the truth to people that I cared about that I worked with on a regular basis. It was painful because my natural management style is a delegator. And I can delegate almost nothing of the of the prep part of it. And so before I ever got to understand the value of my business, before I ever got to understand the process of it, I had to kind of break who I was in order to make it happen. So I just wanted to sort yeah. of share that with you as we start our conversation, because one thing I learned is that not many people run their business with an exit strategy in mind. And I wanted to hear your comments on that. Yeah, no, I, most people don't. I love how you use the word pain, right? But I think it's it's un- uncomfortable, right? So it's an uncomfortable process for most business owners because you have to dive into things that you don't usually like to do or aren't your you know highest and best use that you usually have other people involved in. It is like a secretive process, right? So I think because of that, because it is uncomfortable and it's uncomfortable to think about, it's uncomfortable to do, most business owners like put that off, right? Like you like we've we've heard a lot that we put off important things to tackle urgent matters in our business. Like, I think we also put off uncomfortable things that we have to tackle in our business. And I think preparing for sale or having an exit strategy is just, it's uncomfortable to even think about, right? It is, you know, when I, when I speak to my friends and I I can't tell you how many people, especially post COVID have said to me, you're so smart. You got out before any of this happened. You were so lucky. And I think to myself, I, I don't know how smart I am and I don't know how lucky I am, but I can tell you it was a deliberative process and it was painfully uncomfortable. I'll use the word painful again because it was really hard. I mean, mm-hmm. these are some of my best friends that I couldn't tell the truth to for a couple of years, you know, and I'm yeah. yeah. kind of an open book in life. And so when I have to, when someone says, how are you? What do you, what's, what's new? And I have to say, uh, you know, Dodgers suck or something. It's, it's not who I am. I want to talk about <laughs> the things that I really, and I want to get their advice and their two cents too. And these are people that I relied on for my business yeah. advice often. So it was, it was, it was strange. Yeah. It was a strange phenomenon. And once I was able to tell people, I could tell some people were hurt that I didn't confide in them earlier. Yeah. And that was something I had to pay yeah. price with as well. So it's interesting. Yeah. What kind of businesses do you typically work with? 
Um, we work with businesses um, across the board. So we we work with, uh, we're called generalists in the industry. So we work across all kinds of different industries, everything from construction to e-com to professional services, things like that. Where we niche is that we're working with um, small to mid-sized companies. So typically working with companies that do between zero and 30 million in annual revenue average client is right around a million dollars in revenue. Um, so like when you're looking at exit strategy, exit preparation, business sales, that's really the, where the market is niched in. It's based on size of the company rather than industry. Cause I, size actually dictates the process a lot more, um, more than what an industry would in terms of how you get a business prepared for sale and ultimately sold. And you work with the actual business leadership to prepare for sale, or do you teach them a process? What What is your methodology? Yeah, so we, we have a proprietary process um, that we customize for each business owner. We work directly with the owners. Um, so like it was uncomfortable and painful for you. We don't advise bringing your leadership team into this conversation of prepping for sale, we might say like, Hey, you know, one of the things we might work on is documenting your sales process and getting it ready for transfer. We might say, Hey, go to your sales team and, and delegate documenting the sales process, but not bringing them into the conversation of the purpose of it is to prepare the company for sale, increase the value of the company, whatever. So we're working directly with the business owners, taking them through our proprietary process of increasing the value of a company um, over a defined period, one, two, three years. Um, sometimes they'll bring their team in to help execute that stuff, but it's it's really what the business owners were working with. Okay. So then once once you've gone through the process, then do you then hand it off to a business broker or an MA group? What do you is that you don't handle the actual transaction, correct? Yeah, we don't handle the actual transaction. I mean, full disclosure, I, I am an owner um, in an M&A and business brokerage firm. So like I have that side and that's where I came from. Yeah, once they're prepared for sale, the owner really has three decisions. They can go through a process and hire a broker or an M&A advisor. And we actually pre-vet a bunch of business brokers and investment bankers. So we've got 165 pre-vetted partners across the country. So they could go through that process and we can provide those introdu introductions for them to select who they want to ultimately ultimately work with. They could decide to keep the company for a couple more years. Like they might get it to the point where we joke all the time, if it's efficient and profitable, like why, why would I want to sell? Right? right. So they could, they could hold on to that, or they could decide to transition that business to some type of an internal buyer. Like we call it like a, a different a business partner, a second generation, maybe an employee sale. And they could go through that too. So they really, I mean, they ultimately have three decisions of keep it, transition it to the next generation, or ultimately sell the company at the end. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, one of the things you said was the second choice where you said they keep it for a few more years. And I can tell you that as I went through the process, my business became much more efficient and therefore much more profitable. It, it, it occurred to me at that time that you should always be running your business like you're planning to sell it because you probably run it better if you are running it as though a, a second set of eyes are looking at your how you're doing things. Um, I can tell you, once I got my house in order, we we ran a much tighter ship, and we, we were a much better company. And I think the customers liked it better too. I think everything about it was better. And we had a couple of years because we had a false we had a false start. We had we were selling it, and then it fell through. And then in that process, I continued to run it, but it was actually worked out to our benefit because we were doing better. So we were able to get a higher price the second time around and become, of course, more marketable yeah. too. No, I mean, that's one of the lines I use in my keynote is, you know, if you run your business every day, like you're going to sell it, you run it 
the best business you can. But, you know, and we can talk about this a little bit. I think ultimately most people decide to sell companies for personal reasons and not necessarily like the efficiency financial side of it. Right. So I think that's why people still go through with the transactions, but yeah, you do. I mean, you should run your business the best it possibly can be run leading up to a sale. But it is funny. That's, that's when it's usually the most efficient and delivers you the most benefit as an owner. And yeah. you're like, why wasn't I doing this the whole time? <laughs> yeah. If you've ever uh, sold a house, you know, it's kind of the same thing. You know, you fix all those yeah. things that you never, you lived with and you think, why didn't I fix it sooner? <laughs> right? Your house is know, right? finally fixed before you sell it. So what is it? Yeah. What is I'm the... notorious for that. <laughs> yeah, no, us too. Us too. Small BizCast is proud to support Fit for the Cause. Fit for the Cause is the leading organization in fitness for low-income and special needs communities. Founded in response to the national health crises, Fit for the Cause has used licensed and COVID-conscious trainers to keep their members active, even during the pandemic. Offering physical training, nutrition, and a variety of classes, members benefit from the same resources given to special Olympic athletes. So stay active now by going to www.fitforthecause.org. That's fit, the numeral four, thecause.org. Welcome to our new sponsor, Jorgensen HR. Jorgensen HR believes that an employer's workforce is the single key to customer satisfaction, reputation growth, profitability, and the ultimate success of the company. Jorgensen HR works to ensure that employers are in compliance with federal, state, and local HR laws and helps assist them with almost everything else HR. Driven by passion and guided by expertise, Jorgensen HR. Please remember to mention Small BizCast when you call 661-600-2070 or visit them online at jorgensenhr.com. If you know of anyone who feels lonely on their way to the top, I can help. Hot Dog Business Growth is for companies of all sizes. For people new to business, we offer the Pay It Forward Roundtable, a monthly half-day panel discussion with your peers, coupled with one-to-one private counseling with me. This is super affordable and the best OJT you'll ever get as you learn to grow your business. For the more seasoned, Hot Dog Business Growth offers counseling for leadership and teams. We offer sales strategies and team synergy, as well as customer service assessments and training. Our decades of business experience is on tap for you and your team. Schedule your no-obligation conversation at hotdogbizgrowth.com. So how did you get started in this? You sound, you said you were an M&A. You have an M&A company. Did that come before this consultancy business? I founded my first company when I was 24 years old and we were in the wine and spirits industry, my husband and I, and we grew that business. Actually, it developed into a couple different businesses that we exited. It just three years later. And going through that exit process really opened our eyes of small business mergers and acquisitions. Was, it's kind of like the wild west, right? And I often joke that small businesses, I, I, I don't think got the same resources that some larger businesses did through investment bankers. Sure. So that led me on a journey of really um, getting into the business brokerage world. I bought my first business brokerage office in 2012. And over the next 10 years, my husband and I built one of the fastest growing and most successful brokerage offices in the US. Wow. Um, yeah. So he, we still, he still runs that firm. Um, you know, we do well over a hundred deals a year. We we're operating in three different markets. So that was really my experience in M&A and, and specifically to small to midsize. 
But about two and a half, three years ago, I realized most of our clients weren't getting the value that they really deserved out of the companies. And the reason was because they weren't prepared for sale or they weren't designing businesses that were attractive to the buyer markets. That's where the consultancy came into play. We used feedback that we got from the thousands of buyers we worked with every year and developed this process specifically, again, for those smaller companies that can't afford like a full exit strategy just coming into their companies and working day in and day out, but giving them kind of the, the trade secrets or the tricks of designing their company for sale and making it the most attractive it could be to the buyer pool. So there, are there any, you know, top five or top three things that every business should be doing to get to that point? We've actually come up with 12 different ways to increase value or protect the sale to eliminate what I call deal killers. I'd say the number one thing that I see business owners falter on is not focusing on profitability. So no matter how we slice and dice the business for sale market value, then the, the, what a business is worth is dependent really on two things. First is quantity of earnings, right? So how much profit is in the business? And I hear a lot of business owners that are so focused on growth at all costs or potential that they're sinking every dollar back in the business, or maybe they're not showing all their earnings because they want to reduce their tax liability, things like that. Right. But at the end of the day, buyers are like 50% of their focus, if not more is on how much money the business nets and how much it makes. Right. So that's, I mean, that that's like the first biggest mistake I see a lot of owners not focus on. It's, it goes back to like what we were saying too, is like, you know, and once we start to focus on that profitability, the, the business is delivering more money to us, right? Which which makes it a more enjoyable process of owning that company. Yeah, I know it is a common thing, especially around the size businesses that you described that you work with to, to try to reduce your tax liability as you run your business. And I, I can see that that's a huge problem being on both the buy side and the sell side. I can see that being a huge problem. I was had a conversation recently with a CPA that teaches at business school and he had the first year put together pitches like, you know, shark tank type pitches. And he had one group that he was asking, well, when's, what's the profit projection? And they said, well, we won't see a profit for till year 12. And so he, he just kind of let them go on. And the people that the sharks that the people that were volunteers, you know, that were listening to sharks, you know, really, really pushed back and said, you know what a business is for, right? You know, it's, you do know that businesses are to make money. How could you go 12 years? How can you put together a business model that goes 12 years without a profit? And it was like a deer in headlights for these folks. And it was hysterical. Yeah. I think it's because they're, you know, watching too many uh, quitters of the world, you know, not, not make a profit and think that that's the way you're supposed to build a business. But of course, small business doesn't work like that. We have to eat what we kill in small business. Kind of it a, is funny. I think it's I, like, it's really nice that entrepreneurs and business owners have become like the next version of rock stars with, with shows like Shark Tank and all that stuff. But it's almost become detrimental because I see this mentality going around that everyone is building like the next Twitter or Facebook, right? right. And it, it And it's not necessarily about building it that big, but that the dynamics that Twitter and Facebook and, and these tech companies operate in, everyone thinks it's the same in other markets. And the truth of the matter is that those companies are called unicorns for a reason, right? right? right it right. is very few and far between that companies are able to op operate non-profitably 
and sustain operations, right? Like you're right. A, a business at the heart of it is a model to make money, right? It's a model to return money to its investors, which is, you know, the owners of the company. So, sure. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So how long is the process? What, how long does it take to get a business ready to sell typically? Well, if, you know, let's use, let's use our house metaphor, right? So you could just clean it up and, you know, throw a fresh coat of paint on it and, and get something ready to sell in six months. Are you going to optimize the value that you get for that company? Likely not, but you could increase the likelihood that the deal goes through doing things like cleaning up your books and records and making sure you do diligence documents are in order. Like that can be done in six months. I think ideally in, in, in an ideal world, you run your business every day, like you're going to sell it, like we talked about, but I think you need at least one to three years. So, and, and why I say that is because when you go through the business sale process and, and you know, cause you, you went through this, right. The buyer's going to make an offer. And then you're going to go into this phase called due diligence, which is like an inspection phase. And typically they're going to look back three years at your history, right? right? So they're going to look at what happened the last three years. So in an ideal world, you have three, um, you know, if, if you can at least have one really good year, full year where you can show, you know, the turnaround success or the cleanliness of the business, things like that. Great. But three years will give them a really good history. So that's what I target now. Not everybody has three years. I mentioned it kind of at the top of our conversation, most of these sales are triggered triggered by personal events. It's not like there was this perfect plan that entrepreneurs were executing. So, right, right. you know, so sometimes we don't have three years to predict the future. Is selling a professional practice different than selling a, say, a brick and mortar or, or a service provider type business? Not really. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest struggle I have in communicating with owners, like, Selling a business, the process is the same. Like most of the metrics are going to be the same. There's going to be a few like little intricacies with every business, obviously, what, no matter what industry you're in. The process by and large, the metrics that buy, buyers are focused on, the lenders are focused on are all pretty much the same across categories. Right. What questions do you ask your potential clients to make sure they're good customers for you? That's a great question. One of the ones I, I do focus on that's probably not typical is I ask them what they're going to do after. So really? Why? Yeah. That's Why? one of my first questions. Well, so it is, it's, it's an emotional and painful process, like we just talked about. Right. And I find the biggest struggle that um, small business owners and entrepreneurs have throughout the process of, of, um, preparing for a sale or going through with the sale is removing their um, personal connection from the business. So like I, I say, like you always have like your identity as, as a person, and then you have these roles that you play in life. And right. one of the roles is that you own this business, but oftentimes when um, we're so entrenched in something, like we can skew that line and we can feel like our identity is now the owner of the business. And when that happens, um, it, it triggers like an emotional reaction to anything you're doing in the prep phase or the sale phase. And I find that if they have something focused on for the after that transitions a lot easier, um, versus like, I don't know, I'm just, you know, I'm going to enjoy my money and take some trips and who knows. Right. Um, I know that if I get that type of answer, they're going to struggle a lot more emotionally through um, the deal than if they have a true purpose of why they're selling. Maybe it's to spend time with their grandkids, or maybe they have another opportunity, another business that they're operating, right? Something like that. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because as I reflect back, that was the number one question that 
people that I confided in asked me what I'm going to do afterwards. And they, those were all other business people who were probably just projecting their own insecurity about that, that they didn't know what they would do if they were going through it. But I had a very laissez-faire response to that. I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I was in the business to business world. I knew a million business people. I loved talking to other business people. And I thought once it's known that I've got you know time, maybe some opportunities will open up. And I just had a very confident feeling that you know, the future will be bright, we'll figure it out. But I didn't know what the answer was. And it didn't scare me. That actually made me excited because I'd been doing what I'd been doing for so long that I wanted to see what else I could do with my time while I still had some time left. So that was the exciting part because yeah. I didn't know. And I was excited yeah. to find out what would come. So, but that was the number one question people asked me. And I just, yep. that was the the only question I really couldn't answer well. So yeah, it's kind of yeah. interesting. It didn't scare yeah. me. But it, it, it got me excited. Well, that's good. Yeah, but I have to tell you, the day after we sold, we had put off a couple of vacations. And the day after we signed documents, we left on vacation. And, you know, we we're meeting strangers and people were saying, so what do you do? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> so that that part was very uncomfortable when I didn't have an answer to that question. So. Yeah. And sometimes like the vacations, like inappropriate. It's almost like, I feel like people need a distraction. So like when I, I sold my first company, I was in the same boat. I didn't know what I was going to do. I mean, we were 28 during our first exit. So like, obviously I wasn't retired. Right. right. But we'd planned a six month road trip. Right. So that yeah. was my after was like, I'm going to take six months. We're going to road trip across North America and I'm going to figure it out. But like, right. at least gave me a, some form of distraction that the day after closing, I'm no longer needed or wanted in my business, but Hey, I've got to plan a six month road trip and like map out where we're going. Right. So there was right. something else to focus on. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. How much, what is, what's the typical age of the people you're working with? So we do have a lot of baby boomers that are working on prep for sale and getting their businesses ready just because we're in that phase. Like I think- Is that a about- nice- is that a nice way of saying old people? Is that <laughs> no? I mean, like, what the baby boomers are um, in their late fifties, mid sixties now, but they're they're looking at retirement. They also baby boomers own about fifty percent of all small businesses in the U.S. Uh-huh. So major uh-huh. transition. So they represent about forty percent of the market right now. But you do have a lot of Generation X that are starting to prepare for sale. I find Generation X and the millennials flip businesses a lot more often um, than the baby boomer generation. So, whereas like I'll work with somebody that's in generation X and they might have six different companies over the course of their career, our baby boomer clients had one, One right? That lasted like me 33 years and right, right. Got it. Yeah. Got it. So, so yeah, but yeah, baby boomer is about 40% of of the market right now. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I learned as I was going through the process that I had IP that had value that I didn't realize I had. And I, I think that's one of those hidden, you know, hidden gems that I discovered while I was trying to, when I was preparing to sell that I actually had, you know, intellectual property that I could add value. Is that common or was I, was that unusual? Yeah. Was it um like, like trademarked intellectual property and patents, or you're just talking like just proprietary processes and systems yeah. in general? The, the latter. We had proprietary yep. processes that were unique to how we did things. And it was kind of our secret sauce. And I was unwilling to yep. share any of it until, you know, the ink was signed. And uh, and yep. that, that did provide value to us for sure. So, yeah. So when we were talking about business value, I said there's two parts, right? And we talked about the quantity and earnings and the biggest mistake business owners make is not focusing mm-hmm. on that. But the second half of business valuation is qualitative factors, And that's what makes a business better than the rest, like better than their competitors. And that can be things 
like proprietary processes or ways of doing things. It could be um, team dynamics. It could be all kinds of things, um, different marketing secrets, stuff like that. But those qualitative factors um, are reflected in the business valuation, mainly around that the multiple of earnings, right? So businesses are typically valued a multiple of earnings. And when people ask me like, what makes one business like a three times or a three X earnings versus an eight X, like one, it could be the industry and the size of the company back to right. tied to quality. But most of the time it's those qualitative factors, right? Right? What makes your company special over not just your competitors, but the other similar companies for sale that are on the marketplace right now? Like, who are you competing with mm -hmm. of available companies for sale to? What makes you better than the rest of that? So you might get a premium multiple if you've got some proprietary processes and special things. Gotcha. And does yeah. the I was going to ask you about the multiples. Are you seeing them? I, I know they ebb and flow with the economy. Now that interest rates are, are spiking up, I assume it's a lot like house buying again, where, you know, buying power is diminished because the interest rate is higher. So does that affect the multiples or is that, you know, are they unrelated? Is this a non sequitur? So actually the business for sale market is pretty steady over time. So no matter when you look at the market, when it's a seller's market or buyer's market or whatever, it's, it's typically a seller's market because usually there is way less companies for sale than buyers searching for businesses to buy, which if we go back to the economic principle of supply and demand is always going to be favor in the sellers because there's just not enough supply to meet the demand of buyers. Right. So we do see ebbs and flows in the marketplace back based on macroeconomic factors, but it it's like, instead of like a roller coaster ride, like we would see in, in housing right now, it's like, you know, you kind of like you're walking, you got a little bit of a hill and a little bit of valley. It's, it's pretty steady. So we, we are, you know, we're watching interest rates in particular interest rates and inflation rates are probably the two biggest factors that would affect business values right now. But overall, like the market dynamics are not going to be affected nearly as much as we're going to see in real estate. So pretty mm -hmm. steady, especially if you have a business, that's those qualitative factors we talked about, like that's going to co command a premium multiple. If you build a business that's highly desirable um, for buyers, like the market dynamics are not going to affect that as right. much as other businesses. That, that's interesting. The supply and demand element I hadn't thought about really. I, I, I always think there's a lot more investors than there are companies for, for sale. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's usually about 50 to 100 buyers uh, for every business for sale. Really? Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. So so we're talking about a huge difference in supply and demand. And, and actually, in the last couple of years, that increased. In the, in the entrepreneurial community, we had this thing going on called the Great Resignation, right? Where right. We saw a lot of people leaving corporate jobs or just leaving regular jobs because they want to, you know, control their own destiny and do their own thing. So they um, want to they want to buy new businesses then. So they came to the right. buyer's market. So right. there was at a time where we were seeing some of those numbers jump up like two or three times. And they've they've kind of calmed down a little bit, but it's still way higher than we saw in 2019. Yeah. So the demand actually has increased and it has not fallen off even though interest rates have gone up, inflation rates have affected business profitability and things like that. 
So you probably don't get on that, that side of the business, but on the buyer side, you know, when you have these people that have had, you know, career type jobs and now they want to become entrepreneurs, how do they learn to run their businesses? Do you get involved with that at all? I mean, we do, like I have in the brokerage side, because like you have to be involved with the buyers, right? right. And, and we do have a, a huge buyer database on our brokerage side. And like I said, we interview buyers for Exit Factor to figure out what they're looking for. Like what type of businesses are, do they want to buy? So right. then as we're preparing companies for sale, we're preparing companies for for the buyers, right? And their desires. But in terms of like, you know, how do they learn? Some of them come in with some business experience, right? Some of them may have run a business before, or been involved in the family business. Most of them don't. And I would say my biggest advice for buyers typically is to take it all in for six months, check your ego at the door, right? right so right, right. a lot of business buyers do have rose color glasses when they come in and they think they can fix everything in a business and only if the business owner did this, or why didn't they think about this marketing strategy or this service offering, right? right? And, and there's usually... Like, yes, there's some of that stuff, I think, with new energy that can be infused into a business. Sure. But I think if the buyers can sit back and really learn from the owner, learn from the leadership team, learn through the transition for six to 12 months before they dive in, I think they're more successful long term right. than those that just come in with guns blazing. You know, this is this is generalization, but like not usually knowing what they're doing um, and they can destroy a business pretty quickly. Interesting. So you mentioned that when you sold your business that you went on a six month road trip, so they didn't want you to transition with the new leadership, obviously. So that doesn't seem like it's a very common phenomenon. I know that that was part of my world as I had to be to be around for a while. And I think that's common. How often does it happen that they just want to, you know, cut the ties and move on? Honestly, not very often. Most buyers want you to stick around for at least 60 days for trading and transition. 30 to 60 is about average. And then most buyers would would like you to stay on as like a contractor or a consultant for about a year. You know, the buyer of my business, they they did very well for the first few years. They were in business for about six or seven years after we sold it. They're no longer in business now. So like I can talk about some of the mistakes they made, but they they did come in with those like kind of guns blazing. I think I can do it better mentality and, and didn't want us to stay on. They had their own idea of how to run the business. So right. what, what industry was that? I, we were in the wine industry. So we did retail wine sales and some, we did some e-commerce sales hmm. of wine with luxury collectors. Oh, I see. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So this is a big departure from what you used to do. Yeah. Yeah. But it was almost like a return. So my husband and I were in commercial real estate development and working with large redevelopment projects and investors and stuff like that. Before we went into wine industry, that was our first career. And um, we were laid off um, during the 2008, 2009 recession. And that's when we're like, Hey, it'd be fun to sell wine. I don't know. Like maybe just like take kind of like some years and, and do something fun. So the, the wine industry is actually more of the departure than coming back to doing deals and brokerage and things like that. Got it. Got yeah. it. So yeah. what gets you excited? What kind of what kind of deals do you get involved with that gets you excited? You know what? It's funny. Like I, I appreciate all of our clients' businesses in different ways. There's that book that there's a million ways to make a million dollars in the world. And I think it's from like the twenties or something like that. The 1920s, not the 2020s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love what I do because I feel like I live that every day. Like right. every time I meet with a business owner or a new client, I figure out like, some other amazing business opportunity that I would have never thought of. And for me, it kind of scratches my entrepreneurial itch because 
you know, I, I love starting things. I love learning and things like that. And what I do for a living now, like I don't have to actually go out and start the company, but I get to learn a whole new business, whole new industry and niche. So that's really what gets me excited is it's just like learning all these different business models and unpacking, like how they make money, how they could increase the value. Like what's the the potential there? Like that's what I love doing. Yeah. You know, I, I would answer the same way if somebody asked me, I, that's what I love. I'm, you know, counseling other business owners and helping them grow their businesses. And I can tell you that the part that gets me excited is it's all the stuff I wanted to do when I ran my company, but didn't have the bandwidth to do. I get to kind of go in yep. and help them find those things. And sometimes they have such unique business models that it never would occur. I often find myself learning more, more than I expect to learn and going with more questions than I have answers. But as time goes on, you learn where you can add value. And there's this there's this a delta between, you know, as an owner, there's a delta between what you know you can do and what you do, because usually because you don't have the, the all the resources you need to make knowing what to do done. That's in the English. Right. Uh, being there to, to bridge that gap or help bridge that gap and also to help triage what's important and what could be not what's what can be less important is really so much yep. fun for me. I, I I I give it the equivalent of being a grandparent, you know, to the business, you know. Oh yeah. You know, you get to go yep. in and mess around and get them hyped up on sugar and then say, okay, see you next week. <laughs> so it's so funny. That's what my dad just did to my my son this weekend. Yes. Yeah, but yes, I, right. I see what the metaphor is going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, no, it's really it's fun. So I would answer the exact the exact same way. What challenges do you find? And for instance, let's say that I have a cash business. Let's say I have a retail business largely in cash. Again, people often shelter their cash to you know reduce their sales, their tax. They don't do it. It's not legal. They shouldn't do it, but they do it. It's kind of one of the things mm-hmm. people do in cash. I know of a restaurant that probably puts away more money in cash than most restaurants make in a year. That's yep. They're very successful. I know that's their MO. How do you deal with situations like that? We've the saying in my office, can't steal cash twice, right? <laughs> so those are businesses that are just very difficult to sell, right? Yeah. So um and 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 when we're preparing them, the owners do have to make a choice, right? right. Is right. they need to either start reporting most of their earnings appropriately or they can keep the cash business. I will say, you know, over the last uh, 10 or 12 years since we've been doing deals. I've seen less and less of that. The restaurant industry is still notorious for it. Um, the Northeast is still notorious for it, but m- most of businesses don't do that anymore. And it was funny because through the pandemic, you know, there's all these like silver linings of having a global pandemic. Um, one was that businesses didn't want to handle cash anymore because right. of like germs and stuff like that. And so the last few years, we've seen a huge reduction on those cash cash based businesses. Yeah, that's interesting. By the way, I I've been saying for way before the pandemic if I had a retail establishment I wouldn't handle cash at all. I think it's inefficient. Yeah. It's all it does is, you know, it's, it's someone has to manage it, number one, someone has to handle it. Yeah. And you have potential for shrinkage, for theft. You have a potential for that which is yeah. which happens in the cash businesses and it slows down if you ever been in front of the person who's opening their purse and trying to get the exact change out you know how slow it is it just yep. slows everybody down it's just a very inefficient process so i i've often said that i think you know the handling of cash would be taboo in any retail business i would do now i've been told by many people that that's all wet you shouldn't take any you shouldn't create any resistance to doing business with you and i see the logic of that but i was just thinking from a pure efficiency yep. perspective i wouldn't do cash i was happy to yep. see cash cash kind of go away for a while from the world of uh yeah 
of it was funny. We have we have family up in Aspen, Colorado, and there's a few like cash only businesses that like are no- notorious, like they only right. receive cash. And over the last two years, they've totally flipped. Right? Right. So now they only accept cards or apps. So it's just you know it's it's interesting how all kinds of things can affect how right. people businesses yeah right but i agree with you on all that it's just it's not efficient and yeah the shrinkage is like a a real thing right of theft and miscounting and all kinds of stuff right yeah Yeah. so what what advice do you have for the young kids out there i i do think like going back to biggest mistakes is is really focusing on like how your business model makes money like businesses at the end of the day are our money-making machine and just figuring out how that to work how that works the second thing is that do keep like we were just joking, but like keep good books and records. I think not only when you're preparing to sell, but it it opens up your possibilities and your opportunities much more as you're growing. Like it op- opens up opportunities for investment, for financing, all kinds of stuff. If you have good, clean books and records, I'll, I'll second that. A few of the really small businesses that I counsel are very poor at record keeping, and. As a result, we don't have the information we need to know where to put our energy. I mean, it's just it, it's the the numbers tell the story, really. I'll tell you confidentially. Don't tell anybody, Jessica. But when I managing finance, understanding finance was my greatest challenge. I had to work the absolute hardest at it, and therefore I put incredible. Once I once you know, kind of the light bulb went on, saying I really need to under, get a grip on this. Then it probably took much more effort than it would have taken a normal moral person to do because it didn't come natural to me. I had to really, really struggle to understand it. But once I did, then I was on top of my numbers and making decisions was so much easier, so much easier knowing how a decision would impact my mod, my top line and my bottom line. It was such a big such a big deal. And I'm embarrassed to tell you how long it took me to get to that point. Well, you know what? Um, I mean, I was in the same boat when I ran my first business and I think most business owners are, I don't think numbers are something that comes naturally to entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs are actually like, if you look at most of us, we're mostly creative visionaries, right? right? right creative right. people, numbers usually don't yeah. mesh well together, but it, I, I totally agree with you. I've seen a lot of my um, clients like totally hand off and delegate that side of the business of like, I don't get the numbers. I don't, it's not my strong suit. I'm not going to focus there. And I think it's a really big mistake because I think learning how your numbers and your, your metrics affect your business does open up opportunity. And I think that's really when we're talking about, you know, competitive advantage in an industry or sellable company, like, I think it's a huge competitive advantage just to understand how those dynamics work in your business. And yes, it does take work to to figure that out and learn it. But I think that's one of our responsibilities as a business owner is to have an eye for our numbers and be, be knowing what's going on in the business. Tell us about how people engage you and how they get started. So we're always uh, focused on increasing the value of the business. So whenever we engage with the client first, the first thing we do is what's called an exit assessment. It's like a business valuation, but instead of just determining what the value of the company is worth today, we also identify the future potential value of the company and then what gaps or milestones we need to solve to get from today to that future. Once we have that done, our clients typically enter into our 
program, which they can choose to be either a quarterly program or a biweekly program. And what they're doing is they're working one-to-one with one of our certified consultants to execute on that plan that we designed from them to get them to that future value. And then we also load them up with some online curriculum that they can work on their own in between those consulting sessions. So we've got video lessons, things like that. We also have twice a month live webinars with experts from the business transactional industry and things like that to work on everything from tax planning to growing your sales and, and everything in between. Any kind of group experiences for the people? Those those two live monthly events are group. So that's all of our participants in the program. That's a, a group and we encourage group and peer sharing. And then the, the consulting hours are one-to-one. So the certified consultant and the clients are working like really in their business and, and getting into the weeds there. Got it. Yeah, it's interesting. Interesting. Yeah. How long did it take you to develop this? Three years. So yeah, some testing. We did we did a lot of um, research and uh, asking buyers what they're willing to pay for, what they're willing to pay more for, things like right, that. Right, right. And then we beta tested it uh, for a few years to ensure that we got the results that we were hoping to get and delivering the value to the clients. Did you learn anything you didn't expect to learn? Any surprises? No, actually, I think the biggest surprise was that it's it's actually pretty basic. Like there's, I mean, we talked a lot about it on the show today. It's like, you know, we're going to focus on profitability. We're going to fundamentals. Yeah. The the funny part for me is like the vernacular will change. Right. So like one thing buyers will say all the time now, it's like, Hey, I want recurring revenue in a business. Right. Right. Basically, they just want a stable, consistent business income, right? Sure, right. <laughs> That's what they're saying, but they're right. using the term recurring revenue. Right. So vernacular changes, but the basics of business has remained steady for decades. So as, as they understand what brings real value, they start to focus on those things and they start to speak like they focus on those things. And that's when you yes. probably feel like you're really making progress, I assume. Yes, very uh, true. Yeah, very yeah true. interesting. Yeah. I, bet it's, I bet it's fun. I bet it's, I bet it's fun doing what you're doing. Yeah. Do you, do you work yourself hands-on with people? I do. I take a few clients every year because like I talked about, like the fun part for me still is to find that opportunity right. in the business. So um, obviously I have my own company runs, so I can't take on too many clients, but I do, I keep five spots open in my schedule um, every year so I can stay hands-on and, and do some of the stuff that I love to do still. Got it. So how do people get a hold of you? Where, where What's the best way to to move forward if they want to continue this discussion? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, we set up a webpage, exitfactor.com backslash podcast. We've got a bunch of free resources on there, but it also has links to my social media, my email, if you have any follow-up questions. Good. Okay. All right. Good. And we'll have all that in the show notes too. So thanks. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's something I can talk about all day long and probably bore people to death with if I do. So it's probably not, not good to do that too much. So thank you very much. Hope you come back again. Yeah. Thank you so much, Joel, for having me on. Hey, another good episode of Small BizCast in the can. Hey, listeners, you do make a difference. You make a difference when you share the episodes on Facebook or other social media. You make a difference when you give us reviews wherever you get your podcast. And you make a difference when you email me your suggestions and ideas, comments, and notes to jv at jovopro.com. You also make a difference when you support our sponsors, and I really encourage everybody to do so. Jorgensen HR, Hot Dog Business Growth, and SoCal Labrador Retriever Rescue, all of which can be found on the show notes. Thanks a million. Until next time, Hot Dog, it's a wonderful life.